Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric and Darden and band and crew and um, Good day. I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of wondering. I know Jeremy Jacobs is a tech genius, so I don't know if I have a Bernie meme up around me. <laughs> Do I have a Bernie meme? Should I take a selfie? Okay. So that'll be a little something for everybody at home watching, <laughs> as we do not have a live Bernie here. And none of you are to act like that. Nobody, I don't want to see anybody sitting back, frustrated as all get out to be here. All right. Um, <clears throat> with that said, um, I'm going to start with a story, and I'm not sure exactly where or how to start uh, the context for this story. Um, I had a friend in college who was... Uh, pretty gifted. Uh, he was a gifted musician. He had a band and all that good stuff. Like, I mean, who doesn't want a band in college? Uh, but he was one of those. He was one of those guys that um, he he had a pretty firm grip on the fact that he was gifted. You know what I'm talking about? Um, he did not blame you at all for enjoying his music. Um, and uh, he's much better. He's much better now. And I pray there's not a chance in the world that he's watching uh, this. But uh, when I was a youth minister, a few years removed from college and, and right after seminary, and we had these youth weekends every once in a while where, you know, we'd have the whole group in. And I thought it'd be cool to bring his band in. He was still making a go of it after college. Bring his band in to do the worship part, like to have a worship service uh, for uh, our little youth group. We had 50 to 75 kids there. It, it was fun. And, and, um, and so he comes in. And the first song he does, I think it was, it was Here I Am to Worship. If you guys remember that song, it was big and loud and everything. And dude, I'm telling you, 50, 75, a handful of adults in there, and you'd have thought it was like on stage at Bush Stadium. It was, it was, it was amazing. Like there was no difference to, to my friend. Um, and he finishes the first song, I think it was Here I Am to Worship. And, and you know, kids are clapping. And he goes, thank you very much. And I'm like, isn't that about Jesus? Isn't that where that song was going? Um, it was a little ir- ironic uh, to me. Um, and hence the intro, the intro into uh, what we're going to talk about today. Last week I mentioned the musings of David Foster Wallace uh, and some of his thoughts about our natural proclivity to believe that all of time and existence has happened to give us me, right? How we are all naturally born with our own view that we are not just part of the world, but perhaps the point of the world, right? And, um, and he's like, nobody had to teach me this. I just, I just take it in. This is, this is how the world has come to me. Um, and that's particularly troubling. Well, I mean, in all of life, it's particularly troubling in all of our relationships and all of our friendships. But in particular, when we talk about this relationship with God and this idea of worship, uh, that somehow God is there for my benefit. 
That can be troubling. And we might be surprised when we peel back even good things that we do, even things in the name of Jesus, even singing, here I am to worship. Thank you, I am here to worship. Me, in the flesh, here to worship, right? I get pastors all the time, they're like, hey, I'm speaking to this big, huge crowd and it's gonna be awesome and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna knock them all dead, man. Pray that I make much of Jesus. And it's like this, pray that they make much of me making much of Jesus. Some of this might be my cynicism. I'm not going to own all of it. Some of it, though. It has, it's some of that, it's about me, right? I, we may be surprised. So this morning, we're going to jump back into the sermon series that we were actually in before Advent, uh, called Far As the Curse is Found. Uh, and it's the story of God and how God continues to make himself known uh, throughout Scripture. And before Advent, we spent some time looking at Genesis and the creation, rebellion, redemption narrative that Genesis puts out there. And we saw, not only did we look at that in particular, the scriptures, Genesis 1 through 3 and what takes place there, but then we used that narrative to look at some themes throughout scripture. We looked at work and rest and marriage. Uh, If you guys can remember all the way back 10 years ago to November, um, actually, no, October, uh, when we we looked at all that stuff, uh, no, November, November, I'm not going to get hung up on that. and, uh, and we saw that narrative there. Now, there are so many other things that we could do. And, and we could stay there for a long time to look at how that creation, rebellion, redemption narrative goes into everything. How it goes into sexuality. What did God create that for? And how it's not the answer to everything. Uh, we could look at um, uh, singleness, us as individual people, that we are not somehow lesser than. We are all called to be part of a whole that is all part of our narrative and our calling and our vocation. Um, we could look at gender and how gender is created uh, in the, in the uh, creation narrative and how that gets distorted and, and perverted. Uh, we can look at friendship. Uh, sometimes our tendency is to go all of relationship. When you think of relationship, we usually, in our world, only think of romantic relationship. But that's, listen, the end of time, romantic relationship ends. But friendship lasts. In fact, Jesus himself never says, you will be my, I'm not even going to go there. He, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't talk in terms of romantic relationships. He talks in terms of friendship. I call you friends. And that's something we are in desperate need of in our day. That, I'll say for men especially, that's a greater pandemic uh, of loneliness. Um, we, we could spend a whole lot of time there, uh, but I tell you all that to say we're not going to. Um, we're going to, to move forward in the story of Genesis, um, and uh, we're going to move forward in one way, we're going to move forward from the creation, rebellion, redemption theme, but in another way, the creation, rebellion, redemption theme is all through Scripture. So we're never going to get out of it completely. Um, so uh, today, we're actually going to move to the third scene, and we'll go back next week actually to look at the second scene, but the third scene of this creation, rebellion, redemption narrative in Scripture, which is the Tower of Babel. So we have... The, tower, the Garden of Eden, God creates man good, and then, and then you see a rebellion and God's discipline. Uh, and then uh, you, you could really go through a lot. You have uh, their, uh, the children of Adam and Eve. Uh, then you have Noah, which we'll look at Noah next week and God's covenant with Noah. Uh, and those stories moving forward um, of the commission, God's rescuing and salvation of Noah, and then preservation, and then Noah's sin and rebellion. And then that kind of leads to where we are today in the Tower 
of Babel. So we're going to um, see this narrative, this theme, over and over again uh, in Scripture. Uh, And so today we'll look in Genesis chapter 11. It's a short passage, but I think it's probably got a lot more significance than we've than we've thought. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And I'll encourage you, uh, we'll have it on the screen behind us, but if you want to grab your Bibles or your app, as long as you stay on the app, um, to open it up because we're going to go a little bit around it as well. Um, so let's read Genesis 11, 1 through 9 together, and then we'll look at this story of the Tower of Babel. All right? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see what they were doing. That's not what it says. All right. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they will propose uh, to do will be impossible for them. Come, let let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off uh, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Okay, so... Three parts to the sermon. We're going to look at how we got here, we're going to look at the mission of Babel, and then we're going to look at the mission of God's people, okay? So first, let's back up and say, how did we get here? What happened for us to get here? Um, And again, we're going to look at Noah next week, but right after the flood, Genesis chapter 10 is going to give the descendants of Noah, his three sons, and then their sons, and then their sons' sons. And what you're going to see, this is not an accounting of all the people of the earth, but what this is, what God shows in Genesis 10, which you may read and be like, oh, oh my gosh, this is so boring. That's how I read the generational accounts most of the time. But in this one, God is giving us all of the nations that we're going to see at work in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So when you're reading through the Hebrew scriptures, you're like, okay, you got the Egyptians, you got the Cushites, you got the Girgashites, you got the Amorites, you got the Hittites, all those lands, they all come right here in Genesis chapter 10. They are all descendants of Noah's sons. They are, there are nations, and then within those nations, there are tribes, and, and that is, and, and you can actually see how they're all um, scattered out. Now, I will say Uh, Before I get into this too much, the Bible Project did an incredible podcast on this where they go way more into depth on all of this stuff, and it's fascinating. So uh, I think it's called What's So Bad About Babel? So if you want to Google that and look it up, you'll get a whole lot more information than I'm giving you right here. Um, And so he finishes Genesis chapter 10 with basically this is how all of this region of the world came to be from the sons of Noah. And then in chapter 11, they kind of go back. Sometimes the Bible does that. It'll give you the full out, this is how we get here to today. 
but now we're going to go back to this section right here and tell you what happened in this section. So before they get there and spread out into all of their nations, there's this little part in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, where you get a little bit of narrative. The son, uh, Cush, you may know from the Cushites, okay? He is the son of Ham. Ham is the son of Noah. Cush has several sons. It's kind of a weird account. Cush has several sons, but then it says, but, but he also fathered Nimrut, or what we would call today Nimrod. Okay, now, how many of you, when you think of Nimrod, you think of that as a compliment, if somebody calls you a Nimrod? Okay, it's not a compliment. Neville, talk to your boys. All right, Nimrod in our day is usually, you, you know, quit being a Nimrod. Uh, in this day, Nimrod was actually a compliment because Nimrod was kind of a beast of a man. Uh, he was the first of the mighty men, the Gibberim. Now, you'll see the Gibberim again in David. He is surrounded by mighty men. There's a little bit of a backstory there where the Gibberim might be descendants of the Nephilim. Have you ever heard of the Nephilim? That's this weird thing in Genesis chapter 6. I'm just trying to like entice you to go, oh man, what is this? And you'll email me, what is this? And I will go, I don't know. The Nephilim are the sons of, of the gods, and they're kind of weird. Nobody knows exactly what they are. There's lots of different guesses. But then from the Nephilim, somehow, there will become these gibberim, which are like these giant, huge, masculine men. And so, uh, and so Nimrod was the first of these on the earth, and he was a hunter. And you would even say, like, if if you went and like slaughtered a beast or wrestled a bear or something like that, you'd be like, man, he's like a Nimrod. That's not how we use it today. Today he's like, he's like a Nimrod. He's actually wrestling a bear. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Nimrod is going to settle, he is going to be the founder of all these different cities. People are going to follow him. He is a phenomenal leader. And the first city that he founds, the first city that he establishes that all the people follow him toward is Babel. And so that's the backstory. At first, before all these people were scattered into the nations, they were gathered around this great leader, Nimrod. I feel so funny just saying it. I like the Hebrew, Nimrut. That sounds less like, it makes me giggle less. Um, and that may hearken to some of, if you remember Israel's first king, Saul. Anybody remember why Israel chose, king, chose Saul as their first king? Because he was tall, he was good looking, it's good order. The leadership skills that we look for are not necessarily the leadership skills that God looks for. Here they all follow Nimrod and he establishes the uh, city of Babel. So let's get in then to chapter 11, the mission of Babel. Everyone is together. They all have the same language. They're able to communicate well. They're able to work together. Uh, and uh, they are to be found in the plain of Shinar. The only other time we see the plain of Shinar is uh, in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we talked about a few weeks ago, King Nebuchadnezzar. There's this new technology that man has created called the brick. Do you know why man created it? Because God designed men, mankind, to be creative. 
That's part of what God designed us to do and to build. And so if you take this story out of context, you may start off and going, ah, these guys are doing, these guys are doing the creation narrative. When you put it in context, you can read this and go, yeah, this is not going to end well. They're creative. They build. They develop technology. They're going to build a city. But then in verse 4, we see some of the motivation. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over all the face of the earth. How many times can you just think of in Scripture when God is talking to his people, he's commissioning his people, and he says something like, I want to send you out into all the earth. Take, take my word to the ends of the earth. My name is made known to the ends of the earth. Here, it's for our protection, self-protection. We are going to huddle together lest we be sent out into all the earth. There's some aspects of creation order in this from chapters 1 and 2. They are creative. They are building, building cities, but then the motives, the motives are off. What we see is that they are not building a city for the kingdom of God. And even there, at this point, we're not quite sure what that looks like. What they are building is a city built for the kingdom of man. A city that is built on man's might and man's power. The power and leadership of Nimrut. A city that is, has a temple built for our glory. Let us make a name for ourselves, so that we won't be scattered amongst the earth. Bearing fruit and multiplying, uh, so that we won't be scattered. Uh, the word in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 11, uh, the word for top is the Hebrew, Hebrew word rosh there, this is side information, that could refer to as the top of the building or the head of the building. It could also, the, 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 the Hebrew word there is head, um, and so there's a potential that this is not, this might be the head of uh, an idol, the first temple built to the God of man, perhaps the first physical idol ever construction, constructed. The Tower of Babel and the plains of Shinar will become home to the city and the people. This is the last time it will be referred to as Babel. And from here on out, it will be referred to as Babylon. They will represent throughout the Hebrew Scriptures a different kind of city. And it's not necessarily their values. If you see here, their values, creativity, unity, all that stuff, their values aren't necessarily what we would call bad or wicked. It's their motives. It's a people whose hearts and minds are set against God. And it's interesting. Um, we'll, we will see these motives develop throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout the rest of the Hebrew Scripture as we see these, very, uh, these various nations develop, and we begin to see a contrast between these nations and hearts set against God, uh, we will also see that contrast in Israel when Israel keeps saying that facing their temptation of 
being like the kingdoms, like the other kingdoms? We want to be like this kingdom? And we will see that set against what does the actual kingdom of God, the city of God, look like? We might be tempted to think that these nations were doing evil all the time, that they were always doing bad, the youth group thing, smoking, drinking, and partying, right? Um, We may think that these nations are filled with that. Some of them were nasty. Some of them were downright nasty people. Um, Some of them were were actually fairly peaceful people, even some of the major ones, um, who were just doing their thing, farming their lands, hunting their food, living peacefully. The various nations that we see throughout Scripture, they had heard of the God of Israel. Most of them had heard of the God of Israel. Some feared the God of Israel and therefore the nation of Israel. And some were in resentment or at war with the God of Israel and therefore the people of Israel. So let's get back to this story. And what we see in the second half of this story, starting in verse 5, that God comes down, he sees the work that they're doing, and all that they were accomplishing. And remember, God created mankind with all of these gifts and all these things that we could do and do well. We were made in his image, and so when there is unity among his people all the more, there is a great power there, because we were designed in the image of God. There is a phenomenal power and ability of mankind to do these things for good or for ill. What these people were achieving was self-reliance and independence. And even in our day, we may, sit, we may be tempted to think, well, yeah, those are good. But that's not what we were designed for. We weren't designed to live in independence from God. We were designed to live independence on him. And so God confuses the language. He scatters them so that they cannot accomplish their independence from God. That they could not achieve to make a name for themselves. We were made to trust God and we were made to bear his image in our trust and faith throughout all the earth, not just huddled in self-protection in one place. So God does not let them stay huddled together. He makes them scatter. We will accomplish the will of God one way or another. And so from there, you have all these various nations and cities of man that will be founded all over the world. But God's God's plan is not thwarted. From this group, he actually gives all of the descendants in chapter 10, then he gives this brief narrative in chapter 11, and then after that, he goes down and he he gives us the descendants of Shem, the Shemite people, or we may know it as the Semitic people, People, Shemitic, and they will produce Abraham. We're going to chase that down another day. I'm not, we're not going to do all of uh, Abraham right now. But God will form a people, and from Abraham, he will give him the first great commission, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And the nations that bless you, that fear the God of Israel, I will bless And the nations that curse you, that war against the God of Israel, I will curse. Your dependence, your name, 
your fame, your glory will not be for you, it will be for me. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that at times that goes well and at times it just doesn't. Um, And so God would form this people, he would establish them among the nations they beg for a king. God says, it's not good that you have a king. Trust me, it's not going to go well. They're like, give us a king. And he's like, okay. Gives them a king, and sure enough, it doesn't go well. It goes okay for like a minute, and then it doesn't go well. Um, God would establish them. He, he would even put boundaries, and he would put them as a nation, establish them as a nation, right smack dab in the middle of the known world at that time. Everybody had to travel through that place. Everybody, uh, Jerusalem is right in the heart of all known civilization and God establishes them right there and says, even there, you are to be a blessing to all the nations around you. Live and trust me. Let me establish your boundaries. God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of all people. And we see this over and over again. All the peoples of the earth. He's not bound by a national, national or by a boundary. In, the God, in Exodus, we see that God is far more powerful than the gods of Egypt. Even the bright and morning star, the Pharaoh himself. In the book of Jonah, we see that God can pronounce forgiveness over another nation, over Nineveh, who those were Assyrians. And you want to talk about the bad guys? Assyrians were among the worst. And yet, God brings them to repentance and pronounces forgiveness. God establishes his people to be a beacon to all the peoples of the earth. The struggle is that God's people are often tempted, instead of trusting God, they are tempted to build the kingdom of man and be like all the other nations. I'm going to fast forward throughout, through the entire Old Testament, <laughs> uh, and we're going to look at the fulfillment of this. In other words, what is the mission of the people of God? We're going to look at the fulfillment of that when Jesus establishes his church. This is what we, as followers of Jesus, believe is the fulfillment. It's not absent. It is the fulfillment of God's establishing his people on the earth. That God's not bound, uh, that, uh, sorry, um, that the church is to be the people of God bearing his image in and through all the earth. The book of Acts is a historical book that tells us the foundation of the church established in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, very well-known verse. We're told that we are going to be his witnesses. In other words, we are going to uh, bear witness, bear the image of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, the fulfillment of this story told through the Old Testament, um, that we are going to bear the image of or bear the witness of this story in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even where, class? To the ends of the earth, to all the earth, right? And so our question might be, well, how's that going to happen, Jesus? Because we all don't speak the same language. 
very cool thing happens in Acts chapter 2. All the disciples had come together. They were all in one place. They huddled. And if you remember the story, tongues of fire came and settled over their heads. Don't ask me to break that down because I have no idea. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes down upon them, says you will have power and authority. And then Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, there's a festival happening in Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 2, 5 through 8 says this, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay? You guys see what's going on here? And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are all these who are not speaking, are they all not Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? The church the people of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus. This is the beginning of the undoing of the the curse of Babel. It is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. It is the war against the city of the kingdom of man to establish the kingdom of God. God scatters and confuses at the Tower of Babel, and in the resurrection of Jesus made known by his people, God gathers again and makes clear for us to be then scattered amongst the earth, bearing witness to the kingdom of God. By the end of chapter 2, all of these people who are being made new from different backgrounds and different stories and different nations. They are starting to gather together, not for the purpose of self-protection, but they are gathered together. They share meals together. They study the apostles' teaching together. They give to each other so that none may have need. They give to the city. They have favor with everyone around them. And the Lord adds day by day those who are being saved. And then after Acts chapter 2, we see the establishment of the church that they are being sent to every tongue, every tribe, every nation, that one day the culmination, the full culmination of all this, that God will gather from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we will all stand in the presence of the, Lord, of the risen Lamb and singing glory and praises to his name. Here again, one of the issues that the... Uh, people of God struggled with over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures was the temptation to be just like the other nations. Just like the kingdoms of man, the motive for self-protection, the motive to elevate the high and the mighty and the physically and mentally powerful over the care for the weak and the poor and the outsider. Motives to achieve security by military might and by big walls and not to trust God. Motives to fight evil with evil for the glory of our own name. Um, 15 years ago, it may have even been 16 years ago, which feels like a really long time. Gosh, it had to be 16 years ago. I was, um, I was invited to go to this church planting thing, which I was kind of on the board. I, I had been in ministry for a little while. I had gotten out of it, but I was invited to go to this thing. They were going to talk about church planting. There were three guys, three pastors that had planted churches, and they were going to talk about it. So I was like, all right, cool. There's 30 or 40 people there. The first guy gets up to talk, And this is a strategy that he planted the church with. He said, when we started the church, this is the question we asked every time. 
how are we going to be doing these processes when we get to 1,000 people? Everything in me just curdled. It was like singing a worship song and, you know, thank you very much. It was a business strategy. And I'm, uh, listen, there are some redemptive elements. For crying out loud, we need some <laughs> better here. I, I, don't, I don't question that. Um, but that's a business strategy. That's growing your organization. The second guy I get up to speak, he was a friend of mine. He's still a very good friend of mine. I appreciate him greatly. The second guy that got up to speak, he said this. They had been planted for seven years. And he said the first three and a half years, we were desperate. We didn't know if people were going to show up. Um, we, we were raising money. We didn't have to, you know, we didn't, people weren't giving or anything like that. We were desperate. And so we operated from a position of desperation the first three and a half years. And then people started coming. And they actually, we figured they would come back the next week. Like they had been there enough times that we could gain some confidence in that. And uh, we got a building and we got a budget and we got all this type of stuff. And he said, then the last three and a half years, we've not been nearly as desperate. He said, here's what I've learned in the last three and a half years. You can accomplish a whole lot without God. When I heard that, I was like, tell me more. Tell me more. The church today can still struggle with this temptation to be like the kingdoms of man. To huddle together, to build the walls and not let the outsiders in. To all look the same and act the same to model businesses and corporations and corporate techniques, flashy shows. I mean, we got really cool Christmas lights. Oh, they were cool. Um, they fell one week, and we're desperate and praying for God not to let that happen again. We did, we did take extra precaution there, just in case you're worried. We can model businesses and business growth and techniques. We can operate with pride or arrogance to say our way is the only way. Or we can wrap our flag around the Bible and expect God to dance whenever we play the fife. I want to finish with a brief warning. Brief. But then I want to give some stories that I hope and pray will absolutely unleash you with an utmost confidence being part of the kingdom of God and unleash you on the world. Okay? I'm going to take a little bit of time to... to Flush this out, so bear with me. Here's the warning. I've shared this before. Um, there is a difference between being, between, uh, being a missionary and being a colonizer. There's a difference between being a missionary and being a colonizer. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Colonizing seeks to grow an earthly entity and the methods, and I'm not saying these are, this is how nations operate, but the method is assimilate or else. Become like me. A missionary is sent to seek the welfare of the city in the name of Jesus and the mission is not become like me. The mission is may we Become like Jesus and bear that image. As the church, we are called to be missionaries, 
not colonizers. I've shared before the story of a guy named Nathan Price. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. There's a book written about him. It's not flattering. Nathan Price was a missionary to the Congo. He was former military, and he, deserved, he, just, he determined to go to the Congo and see more people baptized and saved than he saw die in the war. He did not ask his wife and kids if they wanted to go with him. He mandated that they go with him, and one of his children would end up dying there. Uh, the stories about him are endless. He did not bother to learn the culture. He did not bother to love them well. He simply went in with his agenda. Um, he, uh, he would baptize natives uh, in rivers that were infested with crocodiles, putting everybody's life in danger. Um, at the end of all of his sermons, this is where you may have heard of him, at the end of all of his sermons, he would proclaim... Tata Jesus is Bangala. He did not learn to pronounce that right, so instead of saying Jesus is beloved or Jesus is Lord, he would repeat at the end of all of his sermons, Jesus is poison wood. The poison wood tree being a tree that the natives knew to stay away from. This is told of in the story of the Poison Wood Bible, and it painted a picture of missionaries as these racist, ignorant, um, colonizers, generally causing more harm than good. And that's certainly not untrue in some, sense, in some cases. However, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of a, na- a man named Robert Woodbury? I'm willing to bet none of you have. And if you think you have, I'm betting you haven't. He has done some incredible research. He's a sociologist, and he's told some incredible stories Another name that some of you might be familiar with, we'll come back to him, you might be familiar with a man named John McKenzie, but probably not. You get a bonus points. Points don't matter. Or nobody heard of John McKenzie. All right, here's the story of John McKenzie. He was a missionary to Botswana. And when white settlers in South Africa threatened to take over the natives' land, McKenzie helped his friend and political ally, Kahama III, travel to Britain. And there, McKenzie and his colleagues held petition drives. They translated for Kahama uh, and two other chiefs at political rallies. They even arranged meeting with with Queen Victoria. Ultimately, their efforts convinced Britain to enact a land protection agreement. Without it, the nation of Botswana would likely not exist today. John McKenzie was a forgotten missionary. Nobody wrote books about John McKenzie, except Robert Woodbury. Robert Woodbury uncovered for us quite possibly the greatest contemporary apologetic for the existence and the power of the gospel in our day. He researched and wrote stories about Protestant missionaries in the 19th century. Um, And in his research, these missionaries, a particular type of missionary, the health of a country today was determined almost solely by the presence of these missionaries. And neighboring countries who remain in third world status did not have these particular missionaries. That it was mainly and perhaps only their presence that made one of the most significant impacts in ensuring the health of many nations where missionaries were sent. 
But here's the deal. It was only the, cult, the countries that allowed in conversional Protestant missionaries. Missionaries going in the name of Jesus. Christian Protestant missionaries who preached and practiced Jesus, who were not funded by the state, who were not sent there as colonizers. Are you with me? I know we don't see this, but this is astounding. This is astounding. Colonists in both, this is from an article in Christianity Today, which I will gladly forward. Colonists in both French and Belgian Congo had forced villagers to extract rubber from the jungle. As punishment for not complying, they burned down villages, castrated men, cut off children's limbs. In the French Congo, the atrocities passed without comment or protest, aside from one report in a Marxist newspaper in France. But in the Belgian Congo, the abuses aroused Largest, the largest international protest movement since the abolition of slavery. Why the difference? Why the difference? Working on a hunch, Woodbury charted mission stations all across the Congo. Protestant missionaries, it turned out, were allowed in the Belgian Congo. And among those missionaries were two British Baptists named John and Alice Harris, who took photographs of the atrocities, including the now famous picture of a father gazing at his daughter's remains. It's one of the first uses of color photography, uh, or of photography. And then they smuggled these photographs out of the country. With evidence in hand, they traveled throughout the United States and Britain to stir up public pressure, and along with other missionaries, helped raise an outcry against the abuses. What Woodbury found was astounding. These missionaries, they wouldn't go in with a social agenda. They would go in with the love of Jesus. And they were compelled by Jesus to go and love these people. And when they would enter these countries, they would see different types of oppression and different types of abuse. They would see poverty. They would reach out to the poor. They would help them learn to read. They started these, they used the printing press to get books into people's hands. They would advocate for the rights and protection of women who were either simply being not educated or outright abused. Natives in all of these countries were often skeptical of any missionary that came in. Do you know why? Because so many of them were, co- were colonizing. They were there on behalf of the state, and quite honestly, they would function just like Babylon. But these missionaries were different. They would go in, they would learn the culture, they would love the people, they would teach, they would educate, they would advocate. In China, missionaries worked to end the opium trade. In India, they fought to curtail abuses by landlords. In the West Indies and other colonies, they played key roles in building the abolition movement. Back home, their allies passed legislation that returned land to the native Zosa people of South Africa and also protected tribes in New Zealand and Australia from being wiped out by settlers. There is literally a one-to-one correlation of nations that had people compelled by Jesus to go to them and now the equal treatment of people. Better rights for women and children, better health care, better education, more economically flourishing, less political upheaval, and all of them fundamentally democratic with greater human freedom, all because these Protestant missionaries who simply went in the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and not the kingdom of man. Woodbury was blown away because he thought, surely that can't be it. Surely that can't be the only reason. 
He criticized his work more than anyone. He went from every possible angle. He put it in front of everybody you could possibly think of. One woman who is a, uh, who is a sociologist professor in Texas somewhere, she's like, I'm not religious, but this is making me think again. The kingdom of God made known among this earth. And it's not just go to heaven when you die. It actually bears earthly fruit. Were there problems? Were some of these guys problematic? Sure. But these followers of Jesus who gave themselves for the sake of others literally changed the world. Friends, church, we are first and foremost, before anything else, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we are missionaries to America. We are missionaries to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our cities. We are citizens of a kingdom of God before we are citizens of any nation, any land, any political party, any tax bracket. And our mission is not to colonize America in the name of Jesus. Our mission is to gather together, to see and to study the apostles' teaching and let Jesus change us and work within us and bring about repentance and humble us and compel us by the love that he has shown us to the outsider, to the marginalized, and shape us to love our neighbor, love our neighborhood, love our city, to fight and advocate and care for the poor and the outsider and the marginalized. And I will tell you right now, I don't care what man-made label anyone gives you or us. We are to be the people of God building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. Refuge, you're rocking this. Let's keep going. We are seeing a kingdom established among us that will not fail. Let's go in confidence. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that every time we look and think, ah, oh, you've given us an opportunity, you've given mankind an opportunity, and we've spent it on ourselves. You are faithful to discipline, reorganize, recommission, send out. Your plan will not be thwarted. But may we be careful. The temptation is great to build a Tower of Babel, to gather in the name of refuge, and I love this church, but I don't care if it lasts 100 years or 10 years or whatever. May the name of Jesus be praised. May the people be transformed. May, we, may I be transformed, and may we love this city well and bear your image well. We have excuses. We have ways around that. We have definitions. We have technicalities. We have yeah buts. We have whatabouts. All that stuff. I pray that we would ditch it and you would set us free to love with incredible compassion and generosity, a fierce love for our neighbors. May we build and see built among us the glorious kingdom of God and may we practice day by day not building our own towers, whether that's our retirement, whether that's our bottom line, whether that's our safety, our homeowners association, our our suburban, whatever, whatever it may be, our kids, may we operate in faithfulness and trust. 
that you will establish, you will establish your kingdom and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We ask this, both encouragement, uh, repentance, whatever we need. We ask for your continued faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.